Hello, I'm Stevie Nicks and welcome to In My Life, the podcast where we get to learn a little bit more about our favourite artists from someone who should know, the artists themselves. Today we're going to listen to Van Morrison, a man who has been on the record for 60 years. Kind of. What I mean is, Morrison has done countless interviews in that time, but like Bob Dylan, he hasn't revealed too much of himself or his craft. They're just not subjects that he's interested in talking about. Ask him about Ray Charles, for example, and you can't shut him up. But ask him about Moondance, well, he might just, well, moon you. Now there's a mental image we need to quickly erase. Sorry. It's a marvelous night for a moon dance With the stars up above in your eyes A fantabulous night to make romance Neath the cover of October skies And all the leaves on the trees are falling To the sound of the breezes that blow And I'm trying to please to the calling Of your heartstrings that play so low Today we're going to hear Van Morrison go on the record about the period leading up to and including Astral Weeks. You'll hear him talk about his childhood, his musical influences, Charles in particular, his early bands, his window cleaning business, paying his dues in Germany, them, turning solo, brown-eyed girl, and of course the seminal Astral Weeks. Well, I'm caught one more time up on Cypress Avenue I call one more time up on Cypress Avenue and I'm conquered in a car seat Nothing that I can do. Van Morrison has a reputation, a well-earned reputation as it happens, and it's not a nice one. He was once asked what the biggest myth slash misconception there is about him, and he replied, quote, being grumpy, end quote. Hmm, but I'm not so sure. The anecdotes are just too long and too consistent for Van to try and rewrite history now. And then there is, of course, his infamous rant against the Irish government for daring to place the country in lockdown during the pandemic. But do we want to go into that, all of that here? Well, no, we don't. What we want to get into, to name-check his 11th album, is the music. So why don't we just do that? Van Morrison's story begins on August 31, 1945. He's born George Ivan Morrison in Belfast to parents George and Violet. George works in a shipyard as an electrician, and Violet dedicates herself to raising their only child. Music fills the house. George has one of the largest record collections in Belfast, and Violet was a singer in her youth. Here's Van in 1974, talking about his father's record collection and Ray Charles. Oh, yeah. My father has, like, a large record collection, a large blues record collection, you know, like gospel and all that. And I really uh, got turned on to it through that. And uh, used to listen a lot. And, uh, I really like the Ray Charles stuff, you know. Yeah, you know, I always like, I mean, I always like Ray, man, you know. I mean, I, Ray is uh, the cat. <laughs> I always felt that... Uh, Singers could learn more from Ray Charles than any other singer in the world. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, like, he's, he's just a stylist, you know. I mean, he, could, he can take any song, you know, and make it his, which is what it's all about if you're a singer, you know. I mean, interpretation. Right. 
and here he is in 1990 talking some more about that and also about his childhood influences. Well, the first blues I, the first blues I ever heard was, um, oh, it was my father had records, you know, from the big band era. I forget exactly, but maybe Woody Herman or something. Or, um, was your father you a know, musician? No, he wasn't, but he was... You know, he he just listened to jazz. He was well, you know, the, one of those collectors. I mean, they had, you know, he used to, used to go to this um, jazz this record shop, Sully Litzwitz had in High Street in Belfast. And, you know, he bought loads of jazz records, and then later on, I heard Lead Belly. That was the one that really, you know, knocked me. It was Lead Belly, and then there was a bloke that was on television then called Rory McEwen. Oh, Scottish yes. folk singer who yeah. really did very, very good lead belly and played very extremely good 12-string, who I really liked. And so this, that was like the first thing. And then, you know, uh, I thought it was too good to be true. Then Donegan came out and he was playing lead belly. So all this sort of stuff was happening. And then I, suddenly everything I was lead belly. Group and all, yeah, everything was lead belly. Well, suddenly everything's and here he is in 2015 on the BBC. So you had the, the people I was seeing on TV. Then you yeah. had the stuff that was happening around me, um, you know, in my in my area, in my street, basically in my um, my back door, you know. And uh, so that was all going on all, this, all at the same time. I mean, my my father was buying the records. He had the Lead Belly records and uh, Josh White and Sonny Terry, Brian McGee, and then uh, it, Muddy Waters came along. He you know. He, he bought some Muddy Waters records and Harlem Wolf, so then that got got me into the Chicago blues. But I was still kind of in the wanting to be a folk singer mode. Did an audition for the BBC, nothing happened. Then shortly after that, bingo, it was like Lonnie Donegan came along. Uh, they, they, they had that single with the Chris Barber band that came out. You know, they were calling it Skiffle, but Skiffle was actually guess what, actually folk music. And Donegan called it folk music with a jazz beat. That's what he called it. As for his mother and her singing, well, here's what he had to say in 2007 and later in 2019. Yeah, well, my mother was influenced by, by people like Mahalia Jackson and that, so she, she could sing that type of thing. And, uh, you know, she could sing blues or folk or, you know, lead belly stuff or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. Well, then my mother was musically inclined. I mean, there's a recording of my mother that was made in 1966. Really? It's been played on a couple of radio programs. Uh, she is some blue, Louis Blues, Basin Street Blues, something else, and there's like an Irish song on it. It's like it's like an EP. My mother was a good good singer, but she never, you know, wanted wanted to. I mean, she couldn't cope with being in show. She couldn't cope with it. Morrison was exposed to a wide variety of music in that modest household, including country. Well, I didn't hear soul music when I was when I was very young. I heard it later on when I was, I guess, about fifteen or something. So I started to hear things and buy buy Ray Charles forty fives, and um, you know, came at it through the blues angle to begin with, and then rhythm and blues, and. <clears throat> I, th- I guess the first rhythm and blues I ever heard was Wenoi Harris, um, Bloodshot Eyes, and then um, Louis Jordan, stuff like that. Um, but really, so, uh, so, so Sam Cooke and Ray Charles was like the intro of this. And Sam Cooke was, was going in the background on the radio, but it was mainly the commercial stuff. But then I started to get Sam Cooke LPs. So it was really Ray Charles, Sam Cooke, and then Bobby Bland. They were like the main, and, and then Solomon Burke after that, were like the main influences to start with. Well, it was other stuff as well. I mean, it, you know, part of that, there was, it was, you know, sort of, um, um, it was Hank, Hank Williams and, you know, Webb Pierce and uh, uh, Tennessee Ernie Ford country. And then there was, of course, it was, it was uh, Lead Ballet and, and then there was Donegan also. So uh, it was all this mixture of, of stuff. Um, that had a great impact. What, what, what impact did it have on me? Well, it kind of, uh, for want of a better word, spiritual, if you want to call it that sort of thing, you know. Fair to say, though, that the artist who had the biggest impact on him at that age was, of course, Ray Charles. Now my room has got two windows, but the sun shall never come through. You know it's always dark and dreary since I broke off, baby, with you. I live on a lonely 
You know, is the, the the arrangement, his arrangements, and then the gospel thing. I mean, the, the mixture of you know jazz, gospel, blues. I mean, I mean, I haven't heard anything since you know it's even come anywhere close to it. It was just such a wide ranging thing. And then it, when well, then when he did the country and western thing, I mean, that was you know. Did you like that? Oh yeah, I loved it. Can't stop loving you, uh, Georgia. You don't, you mind, don't know me, Georgia. Yeah. I mean, you know. Yeah, I think he was like a, definitely an innovator. All that still stuff has just come out on, on CD, but what hasn't come out on CD, well, it probably has, and I haven't, if it, if it has, it's passed me by, is the sort of um, live at Newport material, which mm, was the, mm. the kind of stuff that really got me excited Yeah, me about too. It that then. was my, the first one I got, it was Ray Charles at Newport, and then... And Ray his Charles keyboard live playing, what I say, and oh, things yeah, like that, right. but also the saxophone. Yeah, right. Well, he was, he's a very good saxophone player, and in fact, I think he should play more. Van gets his first guitar when he's 11, and he teaches himself a few basic chords. The following year, he forms his first band, a skiffle group called the Sputniks, named after the satellite Sputnik 1 that had been launched in October of that year by the Soviets. Morrison is the lead vocalist. Here's what he had to say about all that in 2016. No, I wasn't singing for as long. My mother sang quite a bit in the, you know, in parties and stuff like this, but I wasn't singing until... I was teenager. Yeah? Probably. Yeah. The first time you opened your mouth, that must have been a wonderful surprise <laughs> to have that voice come out. Was it there well, all the time? Well, I mean, long? you know, I had to develop it. One, mm. You know, you don't just start at the top. You no. Know, you have to, you you know, hopefully, you know, you use what you've got and then develop that. And yeah. then you've, you've hopefully evolved. I did evolve, you know, because so, I wanted to evolve as a singer. So. Yeah. So I did. Yeah, definitely. And here's what he had to say about that part of his career. That that was the next phase, you know, instead of just like, you know, one guy on guitar or two guys in guitar and vocals, it became a group. And it was like yeah. skiffle groups. So you, you could actually do, you know, folk music in a, in a group format. And right. also Donegan was doing Lead Belly, which tied in with Rory McKeon and Lead Belly and the whole thing. I mean, that was kind of like perfect. So... That was my first band was I formed was a skiffle group, basically. And it was from just guys that, that lived in my street. We all went to the same school. My first gig was at school concert Christmas, probably 14 yeah. at the time. I think it was about a year before I left. The skiffle phase kind of like faded out after a couple of years. As far as gigs kind of went, it, then it, became, it was all kind of, you know, rock and roll, rock and roll groups. So first kind of paying gigs were like a rock and roll band into folk. That wasn't yeah. the thing. The thing was that that's, I mean, when I started, that's what I thought it was. I was just like influenced by one guy and a guitar usually. These guys didn't have a band. But then when I heard the other stuff, when I was getting into the muddy water stuff, then it was like, yeah, well, you need to have a you need to have a band. Yeah, you know, so it's five six guys, yeah. Uh, Ray Charles, and you go, oh, yeah, well, this is, you know, you, the, you can't do this without a band, you know, you need a band. So then that became that became the focus once yeah. that was, like, turned on. Now, what happened to that first rock and roll band? The band was expanded to become like a, more like a show band after that because for some reason they didn't want to book groups, you know. They were going, I like, we don't want to book groups. We need a, band, a show band because show bands were becoming the end. That was, like, the end thing. We had, like, about, let me see, one, two, well... We we got we got an actual guy in who was the front man, so we got a front man, and that was George Hetherington. He was from Glasgow. Because a lot of people traveling then from Glasgow to Belfast, it was kind of like a you know shuttle, <laughs> you know. And uh, so there was a, him and the drummer were from Glasgow, and he was George. He was like the main singer. And at that point, I just I, I was just singing a few songs. Then gradually, I was probably doing about a third of the songs. Then when we got the Scottish guys in. Then we started to change the format because we were into Ray Charles, you know, and we were like, this is it. This is the direction. We were Ray Charles freaks. We just totally lived and breathed Ray Charles. And, you know, I used to buy the 45, every 45 that came out. Well, my room has got two windows and the sunshine never comes through. You know, it's so dark and lonely since I broke it 
Morrison hears Jimmy Giffray play saxophone on The Train and the River, and he talks his father into buying him a sax. This time he gets lessons, and he starts to learn how to read sheet music. Morrison eventually leaves school, but he has no qualifications, putting everything into his music. He does get a job, though, buying a window cleaning business, and he manages to make ends meet. He references this on the song St. Dominic's Preview and, of course, Cleaning Windows, which was on 1982's Beautiful Vision. Oh, the smell of the bakery from across the street Got in my nose yeah. yeah, we carried our letters down the street With the Rod Iron Gate Rose I went home and listened to Jimmy Rogers In my lunch break Bought five woodbine at the shop on the corner And went straight Proper job. I had a I had a window cleaning business. I owned one. Yeah. I owned, yeah. I owned a window cleaning business. Yeah. Yeah. I ran Belfast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Each Belfast. For how, how many? How long did that last? Oh God! I owned it for a couple of years. Yeah. A few years. Yeah. And then when I started playing, you know, touring more, I was touring more than uh, my cousin was doing it for a while, and he couldn't do it any longer, so I had to give it up. Yeah. But I didn't want to give it up. I wanted to keep it going, but he, he had to do, you know, he had something else to do, so he couldn't keep it going. Yeah. So you'd just go around the neighborhood, basically, or was it a, was it a No, I, I, I bought it. I actually yeah. bought a window cleaning business, and I was the president of a window cleaning business, and I had people working for me. So it was Morrison's window cleaners? Or no, it wasn't. It wasn't. No name. No. Not any name. It was just, I just bought this window cleaning run, and... Uh, 
That was it. End of story. And again, did that song come years, years after the actual experience? Yeah. It just sort of come out of yeah. your subconscious. Yeah, there's, there's no time, time scale for writing songs. Songs can be about anything at any given time, any subject, whatever. I mean, there's no, there's no time scale, you know? Yeah. yeah. Cleaning windows, though, isn't where young Van sees his future. As he told the BBC in 2015, quote, I knew I was never going to be a normal person, end quote. And never a truer word has been spoken. Your parents never so said, oh, you've got to get a job, you've got to leave this music thing. Or, um, was no, because I had I had some jobs. Yeah. I already had some jobs. And uh, I actually um, was, you know, supplementing the, the jobs with the gigs. So right. the gigs were supplement, And then and, until there was enough gigs for me to stop the jobs. Sure. But but this was but you know this was more like people forced into like what they used to call a trade, yeah. You know, job. You know, like uh, you had to be something, right? So you had to be like either a mechanic or uh, work in the shipyard as an engineer, yeah. or you know, had a stint as an engineer one time, or you know, you had to work in the civil service. So this was a lot of pressure for to have like a normal life. Whereas I just knew I was not going to be a normal person. You know what I mean? <laughs> When Morrison turns 17, he heads to Germany with a band called the Monarchs. Van by now is quite the virtuoso, playing sax, guitar, harmonica, and occasionally bass and drums. Like the Beatles in Hamburg, this is where Van really cuts his chops. It's a place in the middle of Leicester Square, not the theatre, it was another place. They just uh, had these all-day additions, and they were just like bands coming in, you know, like, you, yeah, next, next. It was just like an all-day thing that they were having these auditions. Ruby Bard ended up getting us a, a you know contract to go to Germany, um, so that was kind of the next move. It was like seven sets a night, uh, seven nights a week matinees. So it ended up it ended up being fifty-three sets a week, no days off. We had to change instruments and change the whole thing around because it was like you had to because you were playing like for like. You know, from like, when was it? When did it start? Like, I think it started at yeah, and finished at three in the morning. Non-stop, pretty much. Yeah. Well, you got like a five-minute break in yeah. between each set. Well, that's an amazing grounding that you don't, well, A, you don't get it now, but you're never going to have that ever again, are you? No, never. That's no. a scene that's completely been it's taken away. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That, that was all to, to the GIs in Germany. More GIs and local people. Right. Local people and GIs. So when I, I was in London with the Manhattan Show Band and we're staying in Camden, we ended up down in Soho and we went to the 51 Club called the Ken Collier Club then, Ken Collier 51 Club, and there was this band on. And so they were doing all this stuff that I grew, you know, that I was listening to at home when I was at home. I was at Bo Diddley, Muddy Waters, Jimmy Reed, all the stuff that I'd been listening to. I was saying, this, these people, they're doing it. So I'd be like, Go to my mate. They're, they're, they're doing this. Why, why don't we just? Yeah. Why don't we just do this? Because this is this is where it's at. So went back to Belfast and then got got a premises, which was the Maritime Hotel. And my mate that was in the Manhattan Show Band, we tried to get other guy. Got a guy from the previous group that was in Germany on guitar, great guitar player. So there was like two guitars, me. There was a drummer, bass player, and we started to rehearse. Um, and then uh, they all they all get cold feet because right. I don't know if blues is going to work. They all started to get like you know back eight and. Uh, oh, but this time you're you're like still a teenager virtually. Oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. So anyway, they all started to back eight. So I run into this guy in the street to go back to Jim Toyce is a guy that knew all the Hank Williams, Jimmy Rogers stuff. He was one of my mates, so we was running into the street. He said, "You look pretty depressed." I said, oh, yeah, "I've got I'm going. I've got this." Got to go into this club, and I don't have a band, and I've got to start in two weeks. And he goes, "Well," he said, "I I got this band. I don't know if they're any good, but I I don't I don't like them because I'm not into Chuck Berry, and they don't they don't want to do Hank Williams songs, so I'm gonna I'm gonna dump them." <laughs> so I said, "Chuck Berry, well, yeah, well," I said, "But that that might be close." And so basically, that was I didn't have a choice. So I got these guys; they knew some Chuck Berry numbers. Got them some recordings of uh, Slim Harpo, Bo Diddley, Muddy Waters, Jimmy Reed stuff, and uh, you know cobbled together enough stuff for for an R&B set, which included a bit of ch- quite a bit of Chuck Berry because that, that's all they knew. 
While in Germany, the band records a single, Boozoo Halligalli, under the name Georgie and the Monarchs. Morrison contributes the saxophone. Want to hear it? Of course you do. The Monarchs eventually return home, break up, but then pushes on. So when I, I was in London with the Manhattan Show Band, we're staying in Camden. We ended up down in Soho and we went to the 51 Club called the Ken Collier Club then. Ken Collier 51 Club and there was this band on. So they were doing all this stuff that I grew, you know, that I was listening to at home when I was at home. I was at Bo Diddley, Muddy Waters, Jimmy Reed, all the stuff that I'd been listening to. I was saying this, these people, they're doing it. So I'd be like, Go to my mate. Hey, they, they're, they're doing this. Why, why don't we just? Yeah. Why don't we just do this? Because this is this is where it's at. So went back to Belfast and then got got a premises, which was the Maritime Hotel. And my mate that was in the Manhattan Show Band, we tried to get other guy. Got a guy from the previous group that was in Germany on guitar, great guitar player. So there was like two guitars, me. There was a drummer, bass player, and we started to rehearse. Um, and then, uh, they all, they all got cold feet. Cause right. it didn't, I don't know if blues is gonna work. They all started to get like, you know, back out and, uh. And but this time you're, you're like still a teenager virtually. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So anyway, they all started to back out. So I run into this guy in the street to go back to Jim Toyce is a guy that knew all the Hank Williams, Jimmy Rogers stuff. He was one of my mates. So we was running into the street. He said, you look pretty depressed. He said, I, I've got, I've got, I've got this. Got to go into this club, and I don't have a band, and I've got to start in two weeks. And he goes, "Well," he said, "I got, I got this band. I don't know if they're any good, but I, I don't, I don't like them because I'm not into Chuck Berry, and they don't, they don't want to do Hank Williams songs, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna dump them." <laughs> so I said, "Chuck Berry, yeah, well," I said, "But that, that might be close." And so, basically, that was I didn't have a choice. So I got these guys; they knew some Chuck Berry numbers. Got them some recordings of uh, Slim Harpo, Bo Diddley, Muddy Waters, Jimmy Reed stuff, and uh, you know cobbled together enough stuff for for an R&B set, which included a bit of ch- quite a bit of Chuck Berry because that's all they knew. When Morrison is nineteen, he responds to an ad for musicians to play at a new R&B club opening up in Belfast. The place needs a band for its opening night, and the Gamblers, as they are known, get the gig. Morrison plays sax, harp, and shares lead vocal duties. By the time they perform, though, the gamblers rechristen themselves Them after the 1950s horror movie. Them does a good job and get noticed, particularly Morrison, who ad-libs for a lot of the performance, creating songs on the spot. It's obvious even then that the sax player was a cut above the rest. Significantly, Them debut a new song Morrison has just written, this one. Yeah. 
Morrison has since said that them, quote, lived and died on that stage at the Maritime Hotel, end quote, believing that the band did not manage to capture the spontaneity and energy of their live performances on their records. That statement also reflects the instability of the lineup, with numerous members passing through their ranks after the definitive Maritime period. Morrison and bass player Alan Henderson remained the only constants, and a less successful version of them soldiered on after Morrison's departure. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Here's Morrison on his early songwriting phase. And in the early days, I'd only written a few songs. I mean, half a dozen songs. Yeah. And so by the time I went, like, my solo career um, with Bert Burns and, on Bang Records, um, then there was this emphasis more on writing one's own material because that's what was happening then. What was the agenda behind that, do you think? Because everybody was doing it. Right, yeah. You know, you were talking about the 60s, the mid-60s, late 60s. Yeah. It was like, so the record companies were now thinking, Oh, well, everybody has to, because if we get the publishing, yeah. you see, then, you know, <laughs> write your own material. That was the angle, yeah. their angle. Yeah. So that was the flavor of the day then. And you how, know? How, does, how does your approach change then? From so, but the thing is, I never lost the thing that I'm a singer. That's what I mean. So even when I'm performing or doing my own songs, yeah. I'm doing my own songs as a singer, yeah. singing, you know, words that I wrote. But it's the same approach as when I, if I do anybody's song. I'm a singer first. Yeah. Well, I, I noticed you know, that. And then what happened in the 60s was that was turned upside down, right, by, oh, these guys are songwriters, but they sang. So people were getting all this, because they, they, like they do with everything, they reversed it, <laughs> right? So actually, the people that write songs that may or may not sing, but they were calling them singer-songwriters, which yeah. is totally wrong. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, Bobby Darren was a singer-songwriter, you know what I mean? Yeah. But everybody else wasn't. No. I was a singer-songwriter. A lot of these people were songwriters who were dubious whether they could sing or not. Yeah. You know what I mean? Them was more or less treated as extras in the studio, pretty much doing as they were told by producer Bert Burns. Here's what Morrison had to say about their recording process in 1990. You know, it'd be an afternoon. You do four songs in an afternoon or something, and you know, whole albums. Two Mostly days. first takes. Yeah, an album. You know, two days to do an album. Then somebody else. I don't even think they needed to mix it then, do they? Two track. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Straight down. You yeah. Not much mixing involved. Was them the height of your ambition at the time, or were you kind of looking at it as uh, rung on a ladder? I, no, but I didn't really. I mean, I wasn't really very ambitious at all. That, uh, ambitious at all. That sort of came. I mean, I'm sort of. I'm trying to get the grist with this at the minute because I'm writing it all down from that period. But um, it was sort Does of. Does that mean bit, there's a book on the way? Yeah. Well, I'm sort of grappling with a book. I don't. It's too early to say whether it's on the right. way or not. I'm sort of trying to grapple with remembering. Actually, that came from me wanting to just open this R&B club in Belfast because I'd been here with a I'd been playing with a show band here in Camden Town and uh, I heard about this 51 club and I went down to this you know it was the Ken Collier Club or something mm -hmm. then I went down and I met this group called the Downliner Sacked who were doing sort of Bo Diddley Jimmy Reed and all this stuff so it came out of visiting this club a couple of times <clears throat> and then going back to Belfast and wanting to open an R&B club and that was really it I mean that's, that's that was even the extent of the ambition I mean, um, we had really no intention of making records or anything like this. It's sort of something that developed out of, you know, what we were doing at this club. And, you know, we got more people interested. When we first started, it was like, you know, nobody wanted to know. And then it expanded and went on from there. And then they started, you know, getting people from record companies interested. And then we got management and all this stuff. So, I mean, really there was sort no, there of was group. Yeah, there wasn't any intention originally of, of actually going in this direction at all. It mm. just sort of, that's, you know, things were sort of happening and you were, I mean, I was just going along with what was happening, you know, and not really knowing what was happening, but thinking uh, it must be leading somewhere, going somewhere. Okay. And again in 2007. All the time. There wasn't a day went by when it wasn't a struggle. And to get a song on a record, I mean, you know, you, I'd be threatened and everything, you know. Yeah, you know. Because they wanted the royalties or what? Yeah, absolutely. As simple as that. 
Yeah, money. It's all about, it's all, what's all about money? The music business is all about money. Let's not kid ourselves, you know? So how do you as, as an artist fight that? Well, I, I fought it by becoming independent, an independent producer, right? Because I always said on the, on the contracts, I always said artist, 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 and the artist never got anything. And then it would say somewhere in there, the producer, right? It seemed like the producer was the guy that was always getting everything and the artist was getting nothing, so I became a producer. But I had to fight to get that also. And then when I eventually could fight my, to get through that one, became a, a producer, then I produced myself. But then it would say on the contract, producer, not artist. So I stopped becoming an artist in the 70s. Building on the success of their singles in the US and riding on the back of the British invasion, Them heads to the US for two months and in June 1966, play a residency at the Whiskey A Go Go in LA. The supporting act is an emerging group called The Doors. Doors singer Jim Morrison was impressed with his namesake and studied him closely. In his book Riders on the Storm, Doors drummer John Desmore wrote, quote, Jim Morrison learned quickly from his near namesake's stagecraft, his apparent recklessness, his air of subdued menace, the way that he would improvise poetry to a rock beat, even his habit of crouching down by the bass drum during the instrumental breaks. End quote. Toward the end of the tour, the band members get into a dispute with their manager over, you guessed it, money, and upon returning home, they play two more shows and break up. Morrison decides to go it alone and concentrates on his songwriting. Burns, however, gets in touch with him and tells him to come to New York and record some songs for his new label, Bang Records. Morrison flies over and signs a contract without reading it carefully. Big mistake. During a two-day recording session in March 1967, Morrison records eight songs, originally intended to be used as four singles. But instead, they come out as the album Blow On Your Mind, without Morrison's consultation. He says he only became aware of the album's existence when a friend mentioned that he'd bought a copy. Here's what he had to say about Blow On Your Mind in 1989. Again, it was just... It was done in two days again. It was, I mean, that's how you did things in those days. I mean, I, I flew to New York and um, I thought, I'm not sure, it might have been, been one day. I just walked, it was one day actually, walked in the studio at about, must have been four in the afternoon and by 12 o'clock at night, I mean, it was done. And then... I, I went back to Belfast and they just mixed it after that. You know. yeah. Obviously, you had all... it was eight track in those days. We were doing eight track recording. Yeah. Had you written all the songs between the end of them and, and gone in the studio? Yeah, well, I, I've been sort of I've been collecting songs and you know writing and collecting you know my own sort of material because uh, uh, within the context of them there wasn't sort of you know much you know I was trying some of these songs. Well, within that context, and also the fact that, um, you know, uh, I, I realized that, you know, I was flogging a dead horse, so I, I just collected these songs over a period, and then, you know, when it was time, sort of, you know, did them on my own album. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is it fair to describe that as a transitional album? Sort of like no, no, not that one because no. that one was very. That album was very contrived, and actually, I think the transition album was was Astral Weeks. Yeah, yeah. There was a couple of there was that one. I did another album with Bang, which was like a total, in my mind, uh, non-production produced by Bert Burns. I mean, he was good when he wanted to be, but he was also uh, lazy when he wanted to be as well. And uh, the second album was was really terrible, I thought, production-wise. 
And and I think Astral Weeks for me was the transition. Yeah, yeah. So it was the second out. The second one was it ever released now? Yeah, it was released as the best of. Yeah. But I mean, it was was actually the you know the worst as far as I was concerned. And, it, and actually redid some of the songs on Astral Wakes, a couple of them. Did you know the show how they really should be done? Yeah. Because you know, originally when I started, um, I was like sort of you know yeah man do your own thing, but then uh, then it sort of got sabotaged. Yeah. It's an interesting story, but it's too long winded to go into. It. And I don't want to. It's like mentioning names and all that. Yeah. I want to save it for later on for the biography, you know. The first single off that album was Brown Eyed Girl, which reached number seven in the US. Now, in 2015, someone with nothing better to do studied the amount of downloads since 2004, plus radio airplay since 2010, and anointed Brown Eyed Girl as the most popular song of the entire 1960s. Not bad for a song that Morrison considers to be a throwaway. What, Brown Eyed Girl? Hmm. No, not at all. No, I mean... Uh, there's very few of my songs are biographical. Very few of them, and a few of them, and even then, it's it's fragmented. I mean, some parts of your own experience you'll write into a song, uh, and then you know the rest you'll make up, or you know wherever it's coming. Just I don't know where they come from, but I mean, it's they're not generally about me. Um, no, that one was. Uh, uh, at the time, somebody gave me a book at the time. Um, well, I was, I was. It started off with this sort of calypso thing. I was playing this sort of calypso. What sounded like a calypso thing, and I first, I put that on tip, you know. I didn't do for a long time because and to me it was like a throwaway song. Yeah. It was a throwaway. And uh, then uh, Sony Records, I guess, bought it. So I didn't have anything to do with that. Um, they bought it and they started to promote it. But, you know, not because I like it, you know, <laughs> but because it's just been promoted as the most, it's been the most promoted track. So that's what, sure. that's what gets played and that's what people relate to. It's uh, not one of my best. I mean, I've got about 300 other songs that I think are better than that. So, On December 30, 1967, Bert Burns dies of cardiac arrest, aged just 38, and eventually Warner Brothers buys out Morrison's contract for $20,000 in cash, the best twenty grand that they ever spent. In September 1968, Morrison walks into Century Sound Studios in New York and begins working on his proper debut album, Astral Weeks a timeless masterpiece that was not made to be played on the car radio. It was made for posterity, not immediate gratification. Astral Weeks is a profoundly intellectual, complex, yet simple album at the same time. It is a beguiling blend of folk, jazz and even some blues, infused with a spirit of risk and experiment. It defies categorization, but invites repeated listening. In short, Astral Weeks was a million miles from Brown-Eyed Girl, and at the time, no one knew what to make of it. They do now. It is now regarded as one of the greatest albums ever recorded. But when it came out in November 1968, well, no one paid it any mind. If I ventured in the slipstream between the viaducts of your dream 
Where my world still runs crack And the Dutch and the back road stop Could you find me? Would you kiss my eyes? Laying it down To be born again From the far side of the ocean If I put the wheels in motion And I stand with my arms behind me And I'm pushing out the door Could you find In 2008, to mark the album's 40th anniversary, Morrison did something extraordinary. Well, extraordinary for him. He looked back. You could even say he got a little nostalgic and he performed Astral Weeks in its entirety over two nights at the Hollywood Bowl. Here's what he had to say about that in 2009. Uh, why did you decide to finally do it? There's dozens of reasons, but the main reason is uh, I, don't, I don't own the original record. That's one reason. The other reason is I've done the full orchestration live because then it got kind of buried. Sure. So, and another reason is the songs are fresh because I, they haven't been performed that much. It's a completely different take on it, and it's a completely different take on the songs. And the songs have grown and expanded into something else from the original. So, it's not like redoing the original. It's it's a completely different. And that's all we have time for this week. Tune in next week, and you'll hear Morrison go on the record about performing, recording, songwriting. Plus, he also lifts the lid on some of his most iconic songs, including Moondance and It Stoned Me, Warm Love, Domino, Jackie Wilson Said, and St. Dominic's Preview. And there's also a fascinating anecdote from fellow Irish musician Glenn Hansard, describing the time that he met his idol and how terrifying, traumatic, but ultimately exhilarating it was. He also lets on what one of Morrison's favourite drinks is. But all that's ahead of us. For now, let's head out into the wild night, where everything looks so complete and the wind catches your feet and sends you flying.
if you want to dive a little deeper into Morrison's career, check out my other podcast, Song Sung You. There you will find an episode devoted to the covers his songs have inspired, plus a few of his Ray Charles covers. Oh, and there's also a mixtape in there somewhere too, if you just want to play the music. Song Sung New. Come join me underneath the covers. Ooh, la la.